Book of Ezra, chapter 3. As you're probably learning now, Ezra comes after Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Not necessarily the easiest book to find in the Bible, but Ezra chapter 3 is where we will be today. We're covering just the first six verses of that chapter. I'm going to read those verses for us, and then I'll pray for us. Ezra chapter 3, this is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people's of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booze, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless not just the reading of your word, but also as we walk through this together as a church. Lord, I pray that you would take this part of church history, of of Israel's history, excuse me, uh, that we see here and help us, God, to Uh, See what it meant in its original context, help us to understand it in its original context, and then I pray that you would help us to rightly apply it to our lives today, that we would see yet again that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It's useful for teaching, reproof, and training in righteousness. So help us now, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been in Ezra now. I know we've been back and forth a little bit in the month of May. But if you remember, if you just flip back to the beginning of the book, just to kind of remind ourselves what's happened, Israel has been in exile now for 70 years. And Cyrus, a pagan Persian king, was stirred by the Lord to send the exiles of Israel back home to rebuild their temple. He's even going to finance it and send back people and also the vessels of 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 the temple. And then chapter 2, you remember two weeks ago we looked at chapter 2. Chapter 2 is this long list of 70 verses of mostly names of the returnees. And we see how God keeps track of all His people. He cares about all those who return back to their place. And at the end of chapter 2, verse 70, it says, Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their town. So they've just begun to settle back into the land and everything is still essentially in ruins in Jerusalem. And then we have the scene before us in the first six verses of chapter six. So one way to summarize where this sermon is going to go is trying to boil this down to a sentence. Uh, Here's sort of the, the essence of what I'm trying to get across today. When you are anxious or tempted or afraid, the answer is to worship God according to his word. When you are anxious, tempted, or afraid, worship God according to His Word. And that's what we see in this text before us. 
Let's begin here with verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now, with things like this, Jewish feasts and holidays, my guess is there are some of you who probably care a lot about this and have studied it greatly. And then for for many of us, it may not be as clear in our minds, some of these Jewish feasts and holy days and things of that nature. But the seventh month, which is what we would today call September, October, around that time of year for us, that was the seventh month and it was probably the most important month in the Jewish calendar. There were three holy feasts in that month, the seventh month, and they, they were these. You may have heard of these, the Feast of Trumpets, you had the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. And then number three, you had the Day of Atonement, where, as you know, in Leviticus 16, the the goat is slaughtered and the the blood is put inside the Holy of Holies. Now, let's just go ahead and say the Holy of Holies does not exist yet. The temple has not been rebuilt yet, so there's no record of them keeping the Day of Atonement because they did not yet have everything ready for that. They'll keep that as soon as they're able. But in the meantime, they do what they can do, and that is to rebuild the altar of the temple first. So I've got three points. Here they are. Number one. The rebuilt altar, excuse me, the altar rebuilt. Number two, the feast of booths celebrated. And number three, God's word obeyed. The altar rebuilt, the feast of booths celebrated, and God's word obeyed. Verses one through three is the altar being rebuilt. I'm going to read these three verses for us one more time. Verse one again. When the seventh month came, again, this is our September, October, The children of Israel were in the towns, and the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land." Now, that's where I want to start. Fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Now, as we go through Ezra, you will see much more detail about what these people were doing, and they also show up in Nehemiah as well. Chapter 4, if you want to read ahead on a future day this week, you can read Ezra chapter 4, and it really chronicles decades of opposition that are going to be faced throughout different kings of the Persian era, and what all happened to stop and slow the progress of rebuilding in Jerusalem. And so there was fear. And you say, well, what what was really to be, what were they afraid of? Well, think about this. These people had been moved out of their homes for decades, a lifetime, for 70 years. And the people who were left, whether these are Samaritans or people of other groups, they were left and you had people squatting on people's land as they were gone. You had people taking over certain areas and you had people trying to produce their livelihood back in the Jerusalem area. It was not their land. It was not their place, but that's what they were doing. And they know that when 50,000 people show back up, After 70 years of being gone, there's going to be animosity and friction between these two different groups. And God has clearly called his people home to rebuild. But listen, the second the rebuilding begins is the second the opposition is felt. The second the rebuilding begins is the second that opposition is felt. Let's just make an early point of application here. It it is very often the case that when we are desiring to walk in obedience to the Lord, maybe even in a taking a step of boldness to speak up about Jesus, maybe in a classroom. You know, you're at college and you're thinking, oh man, this is the first week of class and 
If I don't ever mention Jesus in this class, I probably never will mention Jesus in this class. So if I go ahead and find a way early on in my class to say something about my Christian faith, if there's an opportunity, well, then I'm going to sort of be marked as the Christian from that point on, right? And so maybe it's a philosophy class. I can remember having that opportunity. And you say something early in the class and say, well, as a Christian, I would answer that question this way. Don't, don't say it like that. Don't say, as a Christian, don't say that. But just say, as a Christian, and then you answer a question in class. And from that moment on, you are now thought of as the token Christian in the room, right? Now, you are, the, you are the Christian. So when there are issues that come up later in class, they may get directed your way. And there's a certain kind of fear and intimidation that can come with that. It might be wanting to speak a word about Christ to a family member. And there's just an awkwardness to it for you, perhaps. You know that the moment you begin to talk directly to this family member about Jesus... In a a way, no matter how graciously and gently you bring the topic up, you just know it's going to affect our relationship. It's going to change it. And if it's a relationship that's existed for decades and decades, to try to rock the boat or upset the apple cart feels scary. If I say this and it changes our dynamic, what's going to happen? Is this going to hurt our relationship? Will we even be able to do the things we used to do? And on and on, these paralyzing thoughts may be raised. Well, here's what I'll tell you, and this should be both an encouragement, but also something we should just know. Opposition is not something that is foreign. Even those who graciously, cheerfully, and humbly speak up for the Lord can expect to face opposition. It's just a fact in this world. And when opposition comes, we should not think that we are acting out of a line with what God has called us to. Uh, that is not the case. Here, the people of Israel are doing exactly what they are to do, but they know that there is a threat from the people of the land. And so they're aware of that. What do they do with that fear? What do they do with the fear? The fear, by the way, could involve physical violence. In the extreme form, it could involve death. In lesser forms, here's what it looks like. These people are leaving. Remember chapter 2, verse 70, they gathered in the towns, and Israel was in their towns around Jerusalem. They're gathering in their towns. And when they gather as one man to Jerusalem, the city, do you know what they have to do? They have to leave their homes behind. They have to leave whatever security they're trying to arrange back uh, in in the area of Judea. They're having to leave that behind, and they're having to go to Jerusalem. Do you think there are some pretty legitimate reasons to be afraid of what could happen to your home that you just reestablished? Absolutely there is. Let me quote to you from a professor named James Hamilton in his commentary. He says this, let's be clear. When they gathered together in Jerusalem, they did not leave the alarms on in their homes. Any neighbors who stayed behind could not be trusted because they were supposed to be in Jerusalem themselves. If they aren't going to obey Yahweh and go up to Jerusalem, how can you trust them to obey Yahweh and not steal? The pilgrims could not notify the local police that they would be away so that the patrol cars could circle through every so often. When they went up to Jerusalem, their newly reestablished homesteads in the towns and cities of their ancestors would be vacant and vulnerable. Why then did they leave the towns to go to the city? To obey God. Better to obey God and worship Him than to do what you think is safe. Listen to that. Better to obey God and worship Him than to do what you think is safe. Better to obey God and worship Him than to do what makes sense in the eyes of the world, like stay home and guard your, your stuff. So when they get to Jerusalem, what do you think they're going to do? Are they going to form an army, take up a collection and hire guards? No. In fact, 
in verse 2, what do they do? The first thing they do when they get to the city is they build the altar. They build the altar. Let me just say a word about this altar. In Solomon's temple, let me get the, let me get the square footage here correctly. In Solomon's temple, his altar, this is where they put the, this is where they, they, the animals would be sacrificed and offered to God. The, the altar in Solomon's temple was 30 feet wide and 30 feet across. So it's 30 square feet, which is enormous. And it was 15 feet high off the ground. There was a ramp that led up to it. This is, I mean, even putting this in the sanctuary, it would fit, but it would, be, it would be a tight fit. I mean, this is a huge, huge altar in Solomon's temple. That had been destroyed. And so we're told that they, they built this altar according to the law of Moses. And Moses says in Exodus uh, chapter 27 that the altar can be built uh, seven and a half feet square and about four and a half feet high. And the guess is that that's exactly what they did because they did it according to the law of Moses. So they probably built a much more modest altar, um, an altar that was about seven and a half feet squared and four and a half feet high, significantly smaller than the one that Solomon had built. They don't start by rebuilding the walls for protection. Nehemiah will do that later. They don't start by rebuilding the temple building itself, although that will happen soon. Well, it'll be a little while, but it will happen. But right now, they start with the altar. Why do they start with the altar? Because they must have fellowship and intimacy with God, and the way into a holy God's presence for a sinful people is through the blood of bulls and goats. It is through blood. It is through the giving of blood, through the life of the sacrifice that we have access to God. And the people knew that. And so the first thing they do, the first item on their list is to build this altar to God. See, building this altar to God was their way of running to God for security. See, in the world's eyes, security would be doing other things, not building an altar. That's, that's a misuse of time right now. Let's go, let's go make ourselves physically secure first, and then let's build the altar. But the people said, no, 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 we're really in danger. If we want to find security, we need God. And the way we need to find God is we need to access to God. And the way we need access to God is through blood offering. We need substitutionary sacrifice so that a holy God can forgive a sinful people and we can have immediate access to God. And so the first thing that was built was this altar. You know, we could be tempted today, you can, you can write the list yourself. We can be tempted today to find security in our savings account. We can find our security in our job, family, career, you know, you're tenured or whatever it might be. I'm, I'm secure. Nothing can happen to me. Uh, we might have some kind of thing saved up for the future and we put our hope in that or relationships or our past track record in some way. You know, I, I've done this successfully up till now. Surely I can do it successfully again. We can hope in all kinds of different things. But are we truly putting our hope and trust for our security in the Lord? This is not a security that keeps us free from pain or even physical danger, but it's the true security spiritual security, a forgiveness of sins and access to God. James Hamilton again writes this, is this the way that we respond to intimidating neighbors, dangerous situations, and the spiritually devastating poison the culture offers us as pleasure? We must be those who respond to danger, intimidation, and temptation by worshiping God. How about that? When temptation comes in your life, they were tempted to disobey God and to try to protect themselves. That was, that was their temptation. Whatever the temptation may be for you, you can think about it for a moment. What are temptations that you are currently struggling with? What's an area, if you're being honest, maybe if you're one-on-one -on -one with a trusted friend, you could say, listen, here is the area where my flesh, I am most vulnerable right now. I can just tell. 
I just, I know myself well enough to know this is my vulnerable spot right now. This is the area, whatever it may be, this is where I'm most likely to fail or I have most recently failed in my life. Think about what that might be for you. What do you do with that temptation? When you are in a group, maybe you're tempted. Maybe when you're alone, you're tempted. When is it that you're tempted? When is the most likely time in your week that you're going to be tempted by that thing? What are the most common circumstances that come with that temptation for you? Do, you? do you know that? Do you think about those things? I, I know I am most vulnerable in this particular setting, in this particular situation, at this particular time. There's a repeating pattern. Uh, David Pallison, the Christian counselor, said, when I, <laughs> this made me smile. He said, he, he's been a counselor his whole life, very wise, godly, brilliant man. He's now in heaven. David Pallison said, I sit down with someone for the first time, and I'm asking them questions about temptation. And he said, I, I, I'm always looking for uh, e- evidences of a pattern. And he said, when I hear a pattern, he said, I start to salivate. <laughs> he said, because as a counselor, if I, can find the, if I can find the pattern of temptation, I can usually begin to help the person figure out how they fall and to start taking steps to counteract that particular thing, which is a wonderful thing. So think about, are there patterns of how your temptations work? Here is the ultimate solution to all sinful temptations. It is to worship the Lord from our heart. You say, okay, what does that look like? Well, what it means is the pleasure or security or satisfaction that we are looking for in that sin, we have to realize can only be found in the Lord Jesus. And we have to turn from that sin and we have to preach truth to ourselves in temptation and say to ourselves, I know that whatever this thing is will leave me more empty it will leave me more lifeless, more spiritually dull and dead and desperate than I've ever been. I know that. I mean, from past experience, do we know this? Sin leaves us worse off than we started every single time. Sin never delivers what it promises. And so what do we do? We have to turn from it. We have to turn to truth and light to see things clearly. And we have to ask the Lord, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your word. Show me the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Show me how much better you are than this temptation. In Hebrews 11, that wonderful text, we quote it every few months here at this church, I think. It says, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. There were a lot of perks and privileges with being a son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated. Say, wait a second, Pharaoh. Let's, I mean, wait a second, Moses. Let's think about this for a second. You're the son of Pharaoh's daughter, adopted into Pharaoh's family, the most powerful man on earth. You have all the pleasures and riches you could imagine in Egypt. He forsook that and chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Why? Rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, for he was looking to his reward. And he counted the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. We've got to preach truth to ourselves. Sin never does what it promises to do, ever. The prodigal son took the money from his dad, didn't he? And you know when the prodigal son, the younger brother, when he left that home, he felt like he was coming alive for the first time. Finally, I'm out from under dad's authority. I don't like dad who represents God in the story. I don't like God. I don't like God's laws. He's, he's just constraining me like a straitjacket with all these rules. I want freedom. I want fun. I want pleasure. Father, give me my share of the inheritance. I don't, I'm not going to wait until you are dead. I want the money now. Very thoughtful thing to say to your father. He gets the money. Father is 
incredibly generous, gives it to him, and the son runs out the door, and what does he do? I bet that when the prodigal took off out the door, he felt like he was alive. He felt joyful. He felt so happy. He thought, this is going to be great. This is going to be the life. And you fast forward, and what happens? The money runs out. A famine rises. Suddenly, he's feeding pigs in a pigsty. That's Jesus telling you a parable of what the life of sin looks like. It starts with a promise of exhilarating joy, and it ends with you feeding pigs in a pigsty. And suddenly you're going, well, how did I get here? Why would I bring myself down to this point? You understand, any sin pursued long enough leads downward. It leads into a downward spiral, and the people of Israel realize where this sin could lead, and so what? They need God, and they turn to the altar. They must worship God. James Hamilton writes this, when you respond to danger by worshiping, you not only declare you celebrate God's power to protect you. When you respond to intimidation by worshiping God, you brandish God's truth, which overcomes the lies and insinuations of the enemy. When you respond to temptation by worshiping, you relish the satisfaction that only God gives, of which temptation is but a cheap imitation. So we read here in this text that what they are offering on this altar over and over is burnt offerings. Did you notice that when we read through that? It's, it's mentioned over and over. Verse 2, the uh, middle of the verse, to offer burnt offerings on it. Verse 3, twice, burnt offerings to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Verse 4, burnt offerings by number according to the rule. Verse 5, and after that, the regular burnt offerings. Verse 6, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. You go, wow, I started underlining burnt offerings. It's just, it's everywhere. What, what, what exactly was a burnt offering? You woke up this morning asking that question, didn't you? You woke up this morning saying, what, what is a burnt offering? I can't remember what a burnt offering is. Well, you came to the right place. I give you the answer right now. So the burnt offering was when the animal, the animal would be, okay, I don't want to be overly graphic, but I also don't want to underplay this because if you were part of Israel, you would have been there for this. So I'm going I'm to borderline on how strongly I want to say this, but imagine this. Imagine you come with, say, a sheep, a year old, a male sheep, a year old without blemish. The, 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 this, the burnt offering had to be without blemish, had to be costly. David says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. Uh, it, it had to be, t- this offering was receiving guilt for your sin, and it was propitiating God's wrath. It was taking God's wrath for us, at least in, in symbol. How would this work? You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 1 and other places. You walk up to the tent of meeting. I know it hasn't been built yet. I mean, This is going back in time, so they have not rebuilt everything. But imagine you're back in the wilderness in the 40 years. You walk up to the tent of meeting, which goes around the outside of where the tabernacle is, and you bring your lamb. It has to be a male lamb without blemish, without spot. No sick lambs or animals, which happens in Malachi. They bring defective animals, and the Lord is not pleased by that. You you get to the door of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting faces to the east. So you walk into the tent of meeting, and maybe you're the dad. And you have this lamb, one-year-old male lamb without spot. And you were the one required to slaughter the lamb for the burnt offering. So what you do is, be careful how I say this, take a knife to the throat of the lamb. And you would stand there and hold it still and watch as the blood goes out of the lamb. The lamb would die right there. And then you would be involved in early parts of the sacrifice. The skin would be removed from the lamb. That would be the one part that would be given to the priest. The rest of the lamb's body, part of it would be cleaned with water. All of it would be taken, the head and other parts, part by part, would be given to the priest. 
the priest would take them and put them on the altar, and it would be burned, and it would be completely consumed. What a waste, someone might say. I mean, this is, a, this is a culture where meat is a rarity. To have a meal with meat in it, we take for granted. We eat that all the time. It's, we're used to that. This is a culture where meat was a rarity. Remember, the prodigal son comes home, and it was a big deal that they killed the fattened calf. This is a big deal. Imagine taking this. You're, you're relatively poor. You don't have a lot of great food, and you kill this animal, and 100% of it is burned up to the Lord except the skin, which is given to the priest. What a waste it would seem. But this is costly. It's telling you that the price for sin is costly. That's what it is telling you. It is telling you that this whole thing is being offered up to God, a pleasing aroma to the Lord in that moment. And that's what would happen. And you would stand there, and here's another part that is graphic. The priest would make sure that as you held that lamb still, as that lamb died, as it was slaughtered, that the blood that, that came would be gathered in a basin or in a bowl. And that blood would be taken and splashed against the sides of the altar. It would be a gruesome thing to be there, that the sights and sounds and smells is not like going to churches to us, okay? You would go there and you would be, some of us would, would probably get lightheaded looking at all that was going on with the priest. Why such a bloody, why such an awful sight? You walk in there, there's blood everywhere on the altar. It's pouring off the sides. Animal parts are scattered about. Why in the world would God call for this? Why over and over and over are they offering burnt offerings? Here's why. Our sin before God is that bad. See, every single time for the burnt offering, we're told in Leviticus that the person would take their hands and place it on the head of the lamb. What does that represent? It represents the transfer symbolically of my sin to that animal. And I place my hands on the head, and then the lamb is slaughtered, the blood is splashed, the animal parts are burned up to the Lord. And what I'm seeing is this is what I deserve for my sin. I deserve to be the one who is slaughtered. But instead, this lamb is killed in my place. And we get, Israel gets a reminder over and over. You know, they had these kinds of sacrifices, the burnt offering. They did it twice a day, every day, morning and night, every single day in the temple or at the altar. Then at the beginning of each week, and then at the beginning of each month, and then during all the festivals extra, this was happening all throughout the year. One commentator writes this. In the overfed West, we can easily fail to realize what was involved in offering an unblemished animal in sacrifice. Meat was a rare luxury in Old Testament times for all but the very rich. Yet even we might blanch if we saw a whole lamb or bull go up in smoke as a burnt offering. How much greater pangs must the poor Israelites have felt? But yet this was right and good, and it was what God had required. Now it goes without saying. The burnt offering and these lambs so clearly, there were more than just lambs in the burnt offering, there were other animals as well, including birds and other animals, but this so clearly points to Jesus without blemish, costly, the, the Son of God. He takes our guilt and He takes away God's wrath and judgment for us. It's an amazing thing. So we should let our fears drive us towards God because it is God who we should fear more than anything else and it is God that we must worship. Point number two, the Feast of Booths, uh, the Feast of Booths is celebrated. Look with me here at verse four. And they kept the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. Now, you may be more familiar with the Feast of Booths in some way. This celebrated Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and being provided for and protected by God, and they dwelt in essentially tents, tabernacles during that time. So every year, 
for this one week, for essentially eight days, Israel was commanded to leave their homes or maybe get on top of the roofs. It was different options here. They would, they would be outside, and for these eight days, they would be living in these tabernacles, these little temporary tents, and they would do that to remind themselves of what God has done for them. Now, today, we don't keep the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Passover, things like that, but we do have things that the Lord has given us, physical reminders of what He's done. We have baptism, which is celebrated behind me. You know, every so often when someone comes to know the Lord and we see someone baptized, identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and also in the Lord's table. Uh, these, are, these are, again, physical, tangible reminders of what God has done and who God is. And so once a year, they would gather to remind themselves of God's provision during the 40 years in the wilderness. And you may remember in John chapter 7, Jesus goes to the Feast of Booths. John 7, 2. The Jewish Feast of Booths was at hand, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. So what does Jesus do at the Feast of Booths? Well, He stands up on the last day, probably the eighth day, the last great day of the feast. And there was a part in Jewish history, it's not in the Old Testament, but it was part of Jewish history, that there would be a ceremonial pouring of water, which probably reflected a, a, a trusting in God for future rain and provision for all their needs. And they would pour water on that last great day, and it was a reminder of their need to trust God to provide. And this is what John tells us. At the end of the Feast of Booths, Jesus stands up, and here's what He says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus stands up at the Feast of Booze and says, as we remember God's provision for us and our need, I want you to know this feast is about me. I am the living water, and if you come to me and drink, you will have water that flows from your heart by the Spirit, and it will be the very satisfaction of our soul that God had promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. Point number three, God's Word is obeyed. God's Word obeyed. Let me go back to the middle of verse two. It says, they built the altar of God the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Look at verse 4. And they kept the feast of booze as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. This is one of the things I love about this time in Israel's history. It is similar to our day today in some ways. See, at this particular moment, Ezra and Nehemiah are not even on the scene. There are no overt miracles going on. What are the people doing? They're simply reading their Bibles, the, the law of Moses, and they are simply applying it and doing what it says. And the Lord is with them to bless them in this way. I want you to turn with me for a moment to the New Testament, to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Book of Romans, chapter 12. When Paul speaks about sacrifice in the New Covenant era, he speaks of spiritual sacrifice. And how we are to obey God today regarding sacrifice 
is to, number one, trust in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then secondly, we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So today, we don't, we don't offer any animals as sacrifice, of course. Jesus is the final sacrifice, and so the blood of bulls and goats could not ultimately deal with sin. Jesus ultimately dealt with sin. We don't offer animals anymore. But we still do offer sacrifice to the Lord. What we do is we offer ourselves, our whole self, our whole body, our mind, our heart, all of us is meant to be devoted to God. If you think of that burnt offering, 100% is consumed, and the, the, the aroma rises to God as a pleasing aroma. And our life is meant to be 100% given over and consumed by God. Our life is meant to be all of it, all of our finances, all of our planning, our imagination, our desires, our longings, our hopes, our dreams, how we speak, how we act, what we do, 100% of it belongs to God. And so our whole life should be a, it's, 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 it's almost an oxymoron, a living sacrifice, we die to ourselves, but we live to God day in and day out, offering ourselves back to God through His mercies and because of His mercy to us. Turn to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 4. So Romans 12 talks to us about individually, we must offer ourselves as living sacrifices. There's also corporate obedience, 1 Timothy chapter 4. I could have picked one of many different passages, but I just wanted to pick this one. 1 Timothy 4.13, part of our corporate obedience. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul writes this, until I come, talking to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So part of it is that God calls us corporately to, to this day to give ourselves to listen to the corporate reading of His Word and to the public teaching and preaching of His Word and that we might learn to apply it to our lives. Turn with me to the right again to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's start here, and I'll start in verse 8. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. Now, let's look at this last part here. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us 
through the curtain, that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, I'm thankful that we have a live stream for, for our church, but there is no replacement for being with God's people on Sunday. If there's ever a temptation, maybe you've felt this before, to say, you know what, I, I don't really want to go to church today. I think I want to watch it on the TV or on the computer or on the phone today. And well, let me just say this. There are legitimate reasons to do that. You might be home with sick children, and you've got no choice. And in that case, I'm so thankful that we have a live stream. You might be sick yourself at home in bed, and you can watch it maybe on the live stream. But please, 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 do not ever use the live stream as an excuse to skip church. God has called us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And there is a blessing in the obedience that comes from seeing each other's faces, hearing each other sing, corporately sitting together under God's word, and then before and after the service, speaking with and encouraging one another. Everyone's presence is vital. And God calls all of us to be part of His gathered people together. So, as we learn today, we need to remember, number one, the altar that we need ultimately is what's found in Jesus' finished work. The Feast of Booze points to Jesus, ultimately the one who provides all of our needs, especially spiritually speaking. He's the water of life who takes care of us. And number three, we must obey God's Word in all that He calls us to. And when we fall short, we ask for grace and forgiveness. We ask for help, we get back up, and we begin to follow Him again. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this word in Ezra. God, we, we are grateful to see the people so passionate about restoring the altar first of these burnt offerings mentioned over and over in this short passage. God, I pray that our lives would be totally consumed for you, that we would be living sacrifices, that all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength would be given to you. If there are areas where we fall short, convict us, God, and help us to repent and to begin following you afresh in that area. If there are areas where fear or anxiety or temptation have taken over and are leading us astray, God, I pray that we would be like Israel did here, that we would focus on worshiping you over our fears, over our temptations, over our anxieties, that we would forsake the promises of sin and the fleeting pleasures of sin, and that we would invest in the eternal reward of knowing Christ. We thank you, God, for all that you've given us and offered us for free through the gospel because it was so costly to Jesus. And I pray now as we sing that you'd be honored. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.